This week's parsha is parsha's truma. Truma means like a donation or a portion. They translate here as a portion. And this parsha has a very different vibe than the rest of the Torah that we've seen so far. It's basically the Almighty's instructions to Moshe to build a tabernacle and various vessels of a tabernacle. So it's going to go through the raw materials and the dimensions and various aspects of vessels, sort of like in, like an architectural blueprint for a facility called a tabernacle or a mishkan and vessels inside the mishkan. So we don't really see, there's no other narrative in the whole parasha. So it's going to be a lot harder to try to understand what the lessons are, because we're describing something which we've never seen and something that doesn't immediately pop out to us what the lesson, what's going on over here. Now before we begin, it's interesting to note, all the way at the beginning of Genesis, the Torah uses a scant 31 verses to describe our universe and how it got formed. Whereas in the tabernacle that's going to be built, of, you know, in this week's parsha, it's going to be the first of four parshios dedicated solely to the planning and the implementation of building of the tabernacle. So what that means is, I think it's an astonishing fact, that the Torah believes that this edifice is more important for us to know about, or at least more important for it to be elaborated upon, than the entire universe. It's something more important. And that's what we're going to try to understand, like, exactly, not exactly, or at least generally, what this, what is this thing that we're creating, or that Moshe has been told to build, and why is it so important, and what are the lessons that maybe could be meaningful for us today. Now, I think it's, it's a, it's an apt comparison to, to compare the building of the Mishkan to the creation of the world, because there is a new, create an, almost a new world on display as we will see. Now, broadly speaking, the Mishkan is going to be a venue for sacrifices and various religious activities. Now, that on, a, on its own right, is not something new. The idea of a sacrifice, we saw Noah brought sacrifices, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob brought sacrifices. Uh, we read recently about Yisro bringing sacrifices, and Moshe brought sacrifices. A lot of sacrifices we've had. The idea of a sacrifice, even though we haven't really discussed it specifically you know, uh, um, in detail, we're going to get a lot of that in Leviticus. But the idea of a sacrifice is something that's not new to our story. What is new is a permanent venue for sacrifices and worship. That is something that's new. It's a, it's building a finalized location. And eventually we're going to see that once there is a finalized location for sacrifices, every other place becomes invalidated. So it's, it, it's a coalescence of all the sacrifices that could be done independently are now going to be done in a centralized location. And of course, the question is why now? Like what changes or what changed in the status of humanity, that beforehand everyone could build a sacrifice, uh, ever build, build an altar and, build a, and do sacrifices wherever they want, and now it's all going to be in this place. So that's that's one of the important themes of the parshas. That why now, why here, what's going on over here? So the Ramban, in his commentary on the parsha, he writes. I want to read what he says. When the Almighty spoke to Israel face to face in the Ten Commandments. And he instructed them through Moshe, some of the mitzvos, sampling of mitzvos, 
and the Israelites accepted upon themselves to do everything the Almighty instructed uh, them via Moshe, he bound himself to them with a covenant. And from thenceforth, behold, they are for him as a, as a nation, and he is for them as a god. And behold, they are holy, and they are worthy that they should have a mikdash, a permanent venue where God's shechina shall rest amongst them. Therefore, right after uh, the Sinai experience and the prophecy, he tells them now it's time to concretize this relationship with a, a mishkan slash mikdash, and there he'll speak to Moshe and he'll continue the relationship. So it, it's very specific where this shows up in the story. It's not random that was put immediately after Sinai and some mitzvos. We have a instruction to build a tabernacle because now there's a different relationship. Now the Jewish people are God's people. God is now accepting that this, th- th- this group of humans are now going to be his representatives in the world. And that is cemented with a physical location that is also a spiritual location. This is one of the underlying themes of the Mishkan, is that in our world, we live in a physical, mundane world. It's, you know, we have bodies, we interact with the world on a certain plateau, it's called the physical world. God is from an entirely different realm. It's, our soul happens to be from that same realm, but it's, it's, it's the holy world, it's the spiritual world, it's the heavenly world, it's not, it has nothing to do with our world. The great insight of Judaism is that there are certain instances and certain realities where those two worlds converge, where there's this touch point where you have like a human. You know, we look at a human as being a mix of an angel and a, and an animal. Those two themes are morphed in together and fused together. And that's us. And that's why we have an element of holiness to us because we have a, an angel and an angelic soul within us. We have the idea of Shabbos. Uh, Shabbos is very much linked to the idea of a temple and a tabernacle because it shares the same properties that it has physical and spiritual elements at the same time, simultaneously. Shabbos, you describe what it's like. Well, you have a festive dinner. Okay, well, that sounds lovely to our physical ears. But the truth is, is that it's not just a physical meal, it's a spiritual meal, and those two converge. The idea of the Mishkan, the idea of the tabernacle, which eventually is going to be part of the expanded temple, is that it's a physical venue where physical activities are happening, but beneath the surface, it's spiritual as well. It's a touch point. These two worlds, God's world and our world, are touching at the temple, and that's why immediately after Sinai, Sinai was a kind of the first representation of that. The, the humans were able to experience prophecy. That, 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 that's an example of someone going off script. They're going to a different world. A human is not capable, designed, engineered to be able to hear prophecy because we have a body. Well, what happens? Sinai, there's this touch point. And that is perpetuated with the Mishkan. It's a place where God is going to, where God's not supposed to be in our world. It's a different world. Well, the answer is, is that this is a, venue that incorporates both worlds. That's the general theme. Now, there's an amazing midrash that has a slightly different angle on this development. And it's describing that God is telling us to build a a mishkan, and it's connecting it to God's giving us 
of the Torah as as almost as if we are purchasing or we're acquiring a possession of some sorts. And it begins by describing what kind of possession is this. It says that normally if you buy something, the way it describes it, it's like if someone buys a possession, it could be gold, it could be silver, but it can't be both. You can't have gold and silver because it's either gold or silver. But the Torah, and he quotes verses, a verse in Psalms, Torah is like silver, the Torah is like gold, a separate verse. The Torah is a, a different kind of item that we acquired. It has multiple opposing properties simultaneously. Another example, it says someone buys fields and or, or an orchard. You can't buy a field in an orchard. Torah is like a field in an orchard. Fine. And then it says... When someone buys something, you have a seller and a buyer. So the seller sells the item to the buyer. But what the seller does not sell is the seller himself. So you have you have two people in the transaction, the seller and the buyer, and the seller sells the item to the buyer, and that's it. The, buy, the item now transfers from being owned by the original owner, the seller, now owned by the buyer. But the seller himself doesn't change his properties. The Torah, when we bought the Torah, we acquired the Torah, we acquired God as well. It's almost as if God, the seller, the giver of the Torah, gave himself over to the Jewish people. And then it says an amazing parable. You have a king who has a lone daughter. So the daughter gets older and she becomes of marriageable age. And some other king... Some other prince from some other town courts her and marries her. And after the festivities, the new prince, uh, the new husband of this princess, he wants to go back to his homeland along with his wife. So the king tells him, this daughter that I gave you, she's my only daughter. It's not possible for me to separate myself from her on one hand. On the other hand, to tell you not to take her, well, she's your wife. How am I I going to withhold from you the ability to take her away from me? Rather, do me this favor. Wherever you go, have a little room that I can come and visit. You build your palace, make a little guest house for me so I I could be there and be close to my daughter. So too, that's the parable, but the lesson is that the Almighty told the Jewish people, I gave you the Torah. It's not possible for me to abandon it. I can't just let it go on its own. I have to be connected to it. But to tell you not to take it, you, you, have, to, you have to take it. It's yours. Therefore, whenever you go, wherever you travel, have a little, a little house, a little guest house for me that I could be close to my daughter. Thus, immediately after we have the Torah, the Almighty says, okay, now I have to follow it wherever it goes. Make for me a traveling venue, a mishkan, a uh, a guest house that will be with you wherever. This is an amazing idea that the Torah is like God's only daughter. And just like the king cannot abandon his daughter, let, let her go, the Torah is inextricably linked to the, to, uh, to the Almighty. There's no way to separate those two. And therefore, it, it, has, it has multiple meanings. When we have Torah, the Mishnah tells us, you study Torah, it's almost as if God is among you. 
because it's God's daughter, so to speak, that he cannot separate himself from. Of course, uh, this is uh, anachronistic, but the, the idea is that when we study Torah, we're studying the Almighty's teachings, the Almighty's words. And therefore, it's, there's no way to separate those two. That's kind of a Torah-centric way of looking at it. In the Mishkan, we see like uh, when the nation is worthy of having a Mishkan, we have God in our midst. It's an unbelievable idea. We, we brought the father-in-law, so to speak, of the Torah along with us. But what happens now? that The temple is destroyed. We don't have a Mishkan anymore. But we've seen in the Midrash that God, like that king, cannot separate himself from the Torah, from his uh, proverbial daughter. So the mission tells us, from the day the temple was destroyed, where does the Almighty exist in this world? In the four cubits of halacha. Wherever there's Torah study, then the Almighty is, so to speak, there, akin to a mishkan. Because the rule's the same. The rule's fixed is that God cannot separate himself from the Torah, and therefore, when we have a permanent venue of that, the Mishkan, great. When we don't, well, God still can't separate himself from the Torah. And therefore, uh, whenever people are studying Torah together, it's the Shekhinah is amongst them. Pretty incredible idea. So so the, 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 these two really, I, I would say they're very similar. On one hand, once we've become God's nation, like the Ramban says, we've heard him speak to us face to face. That means that now we have this relationship that's cemented with the Mishkan or the Torah. Now we have God's Torah and therefore he is forever connected, connected to us. And again, so that's, that's that general idea of the Mishkan, which is why I would posit it's hard for us to understand it. You read the Parsha and you're describing the plans to build a building and to have these astonishing vessels inside of it. That's what you're reading. And it doesn't, it seems kind of, to us, to our ears, it doesn't seem like what's the lesson here. Like, we, where is where's the meaning behind it? And the and the, the answer is because this is two separate worlds that are converging here. We're reading about the physical our role, so to speak, and the mind is telling us exactly what we need to do, and that's our role. And to us, it's like okay, this is building a building. It's really nice. We build a nice house. And we're building a house. But what you know, the critical verse is the verse. Uh, eight, where God says, I will be there. You build it in this proper way, and I will be there. And that's just a fantastic idea. And I, I think more broadly, we don't believe that there's two distinct realms, the physical and the spiritual realm, that they don't overlap. We believe that every single activity that someone does in their life can be a mitzvah or can be a sin. It's one of the two. It can be a mitzvah, well, if you're eating, if you're eating breakfast, how is that a mitzvah? It's a physical act that animals do as well, right? So that's your animal side, so to speak, activating. Well, we have a mitzvah to say a blessing before you eat your breakfast. Well, what does eating breakfast have to do with making a bracha, making a blessing? Animals eat breakfast as well. What does that, what does that have to do with anything? The answer is that what you're doing is you're taking the physical mundane and you're elevating it. That's what they did in the temple. The temple, what they do, they ate steaks. It was the world's greatest steakhouse. That's what it was. If you look at it, kind of in, in, in our purview, that's what you would see. Everyone's eating steaks. But the Torah tells us this is God's house. God will dwell amongst you. I see steaks. How do you, how do you see God? That's the Jewish insight. Everything, even the things that are the most mundane and physical and divorced from spirituality, 
they can and ought to be infused and injected with a mitzvah. And that's why every single activity can be a mitzvah or not a mitzvah. There's no, there's no, there's nothing that's parv. There's nothing that's not here nor there. Everything's either mitzvah or a sin. Because if you invoke God, then you have God in your life. If you don't invoke God, then you're abandoning God. Here we see this idea more broadly that these two worlds can and should interact with each other. And the apex of this idea is in the Mishkan. And like we said, it's hard for us to understand because we have the the lenses of the physical world covering our view and we see states and we see a we see a building, we see it's hard for us to kind of get a little bit deeper. And I think a good way to look at this or just a, a way to mitigate our problem or our inability to gain an understanding of this particular parsha is to think of it the way someone would think about uh, going to visit the physician. Someone has a an illness, God forbid, they go to the physician, and the physician prescribes for them medication, take the medication, they'll feel better. Now, if someone has a very sophisticated illness, they probably need ever more sophisticated uh, remedy for their pathology. And they trust the physician because they're, they know what they're doing. I don't know. I'm a novice. What do I know? All I know is that I'm not feeling well. I want to feel better. Go to the, someone who's the expert. Well, who's the greatest expert of all time in helping all kinds of maladies and certainly spiritual maladies? That's, of course, God. So we read this and we're like, oh, we're going to build this. We're going to build that. What's the meaning? And such, so much detail. This is God the physician, so to speak telling us what precisely we need to do to achieve that God will dwell amongst us. And we have to recognize that he's the physician, we're the ignorant ones here. We're the novices. We don't understand it. That's okay, because we're designed by that, we're designed like that. But the mind is saying, this is exactly what you do, step after step. This is what you need to do, and then you'll have the result of verse 8. You will build for me a mishkan, and I will dwell amongst you. You want to have love I will dwell amongst you? Just follow the exact recipe, prescription of the master healer, he will uh, give us, he will guide us, and uh, we will achieve our desired result. Okay, so the first thing they do, the money tells Moshe, first thing you do is you start fundraising. It's like before you want to do any big project, you got to raise the money. And it's interesting is that before God tells Moshe, Moshe tells the people what we're fundraising for, they start fundraising and they start collecting the raw materials which is gold and silver and copper and three kinds of wool, turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool, linen and goat hair, various hides of animals, special kind of wood, oil, spices, and various stones, gems. But these are the raw materials that we need, and that was fundraised before anyone was even told about what we're fundraising for, which I think is interesting, and it does dovetail nicely with what we've been saying till now. There is this idea that the Jews are going in and they're trusting God. Even if you did describe what we're building, people would say, is there a better use for our gold than to build this huge ark with these cherubs all chiseled out of pure gold? Maybe someone would say, is there a better use of that money? And what we're telling you, what we're being told here is that no, just trust God. And I think maybe the introduction of that is that we have to trust God and 
we have to even be, you know, give up our money and our possessions before we know exactly what it's going for. Now, the word that it uses here is that take for me fundraising or portions, which means that this has to be given for God. And generally, we know that there's different motivations people could have when doing a mitzvah, certainly when giving charity, right? People can say, I want charity, I want to give charity, but I want it to be announced in front of everyone, my pledge. And everyone could pat me in the back, thank you so much for your pledge, wow. So you kind of get a kickback from it. You get a kickback, plus you get a tax deductible, tax deductible, plus you get everyone, th- everyone thinks, oh, look how rich he is, look how generous he is. Uh, you'll have your name plastered over, right? Those are various little kickbacks that you get from giving charity. That's a good thing because most people are not ready to give totally no strings attached. But those two um, or, or, or that band, that spectrum of people's motivation, that's what's called lishma and not lishma. Lishma means for its name, for its uh, kind of without any any of my own benefits. I'm, I'm doing it for its purpose and not for any other purpose. We're told here is that you will take for me, God says take for me a, tr- a, a, a truma, a fundraising. What this means is that normally, normally we have a process that we undergo. First we do things, not altruistically, but for some other reason. And the hope is, is once we get in the pattern of doing mitzvahs, our brain will enlarge and we'll understand the benefit of doing it even without getting a earthly kickback. That's what we say, the, the, the Talmud tells us, from doing something, doing something not for its intended motivation, that will eventually bring someone to doing it for their intended motivation. Here, it seems like that this law does not apply. It seems like normally there's this process. You start off doing something with, other intentions, and eventually maybe you'll get to the level of doing it for the correct intention. Here we're told it has to be done right away from the from the correct intention. I want to theorize that the reason why this particular area of life is different, that it has to be done immediately with the correct intentions, is that normally our growth and our development and our connection to God, we scale upwards. You know, we're earthly, and we want to connect to God. So we have to kind of find a way to elevate to God. And therefore, well, how do you elevate? You go at the lower rungs of your rat, of your ladder. Maybe are not the, you know, they're not the most pristine rungs. They're not done with the perfect intentions, but it's still lower rungs. It's not, it doesn't matter so much. The higher you get, so to speak, the closer you get to, to holiness, the more pure your runs have to be. Here, we're not scaling up to God. What we're doing is we're allowing God to come to us. God's going to dwell here. It's almost the reverse ladder, right? We're starting from the top and we're working backwards. Maybe such a process, it cannot have any scintle, any smidgen of non-perfect intentions. It can't be saying, oh, I want God to descend to our world, but put a huge sign the wall be sanctuary. To do that, to bring God here, you have to start already with the most holy intentions to bring God into this world. Uh, another important note here is that this wood, the special wood, atse shitim, they translated it as ac- acacia wood. A certain kind of wood, that was the only, only wood allowed 
for the for the construction of the Mishkan. And Rashi tells us the backstory of this particular wood is that Jacob he foresaw prophetically the Jewish people are going to eventually build a Mishkan, build a tabernacle, and he brought the seeds of this wood to plant in Egypt and he instructed them to watch over these woods. Eventually we're going to use these woods. So hundreds of years later, when they left Egypt, they brought with them all that wood to the wilderness. That's what Rashi quotes in the name of the Midrash. So this is, I think, striking. Think about this. Jacob, hundreds of years earlier, when they're descending down to Egypt, he's bringing with him the materials to plant the trees in Egypt that are eventually going to make the wood that's going to build the tabernacle hundreds of years later when they leave Egypt. It's a striking idea. Like, what's going on over here? So, a few things. First of all, we know Jacob is the one who is the uniter. Jacob is the one that all his kids comprise the Jewish people. Jacob is the one who's able to incorporate within him all the qualities of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, he was one who was renamed Israel because he represents the unity of the Jewish people. I think what, he, what, 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 what we're saying here is that Jacob's influence to unify the people has to be part and parcel of the building of the tabernacle. Tabernacle is going to be an, a, a, a venue where the Jewish people are going to be united and therefore the power of Jacob's influence has to be baked into the roots of this building. That's one idea. Another idea is it's comforting. It's psychologically comforting. You're a slave in Egypt. Things aren't great. And you're going for a little walk and trying to ponder your life. And you see a whole forest of trees that you know was built by your great-great-great-grandfather Jacob because he foresaw that they're going to, we're eventually going to leave and we're going to build a house for God. Now, of course, that's beyond what you can conceptualize in your current state. But it's something that gives a person hope. A hope, it's best if it's captured, something physical, something tangible. Yes, they had promises, and they knew the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we know those promises today as well. We know, we know the Torah promises that God will never forsake us, and will never disappear, and we'll go back to Israel. Promises are great. But to see something physical, something tangible, like a tree, this tree is going to be used Eventually, when we build an edifice to God in these wilderness, that's comforting. And I think to us today, we had for years promises in the Torah. We'll go back to Israel. Jewish people will reconverge from all the various different places that were scattered in the diaspora. And that's to us, those promises are great, but to actually go to Israel and to start building and reinvigorating a land that was dead and desolate, that's much more tangible. Now we could say, like, if I talked to you, if I was talking to you 200 years ago, the notion of building a temple on Temple Mount would be outlandish. There's no, there's, there's barely any Jews living there. How can we, how can we build a, an edifice in a place where there's no Jews and Jews are everywhere and involved in every other, and now we have 6 million Jews living in Israel. Like, and now I could say, oh, man, there's something tangible there. You know, the, the, Israeli army could very much uh, storm Temple Mount, send the bulldozers, 
clear away the, start building. Okay, it could happen. We already see kind of the wood in the distance. You know, the wood of Jacob, so to speak, is, is there. It's kind of piled off along the side. And it's possible to foresee a tangible fulfillment of, um, of these dreams and hopes that we've had for so long. And once we are told about all the raw materials we need to collect, the verse says, you'll build for me a mikdash, a sanctuary, and I will live amongst you exactly the way I show you to build the tabernacle with all the vessels, so shall you do. Again, we're told that we have to follow the instructions. Moshe is told they have to follow the instructions precisely, exactly the way the Almighty wants it. He's the physician, and we are the ones who follow. And the first thing, the first detailed description we get is that of the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron. Now, it's interesting that the Aron, the Ark, was actually not built first. First, you have to build the facility, and only then can you build the things you're going to put inside the facility. But it's instructed first because it really represents what the Mishkan is broadly. The Ark is going to be in the Holy of Holies, which is the most uh, central venue of the tabernacle. And there is going to be the place where Moshe is going to go to have prophecy with God. And it's going to be the holiest and therefore the closest to the spiritual. It's the, it's the thing that's least physical and most spiritual of the physical things. And it represents more broadly what the tabernacle uh, itself, what the gold tabernacle is. It's to be a touch point. Well, where's the touch point in the touch point? Where's the actual place where the physical world and the spiritual world meet? In the ark, and therefore it's told to us first, even though in actuality it's not going to be built first. So let, let, let's read what this thing looks like. So it's made out of the wood, the same acacia wood, two and a half cubits in its length. So a cubit is about 18 inches. Uh, it's the length of someone's elbow to the end of their fingers. So it's like kind of a small, it's not so long, it's two and a half cubits. We're talking about, you know, basically five feet long and a cubit and a half its width, so three feet wide and a cubit and a half its height. Same thing, same three foot height. So it's made out of wood, but the wood is covered in pure gold. From within and from without, you shall cover it. So you should make it and make a gold crown all around it. So this is describing a box that is made out of wood, but it's covered from the inside and from the outside with gold. So the wood is actually never seen. You don't see the wood. And in fact, there's the way it was actually built is there's a box, a wooden, a gold box. Inside you put the wood, and inside you put another box which covers the wood, and also you don't see the wood. Okay. And you put a gold crown around it. And you put four reams of gold on four corners, two reams on each side. And then you make poles of wood which are covered in gold as well. And you insert those poles into the rings which will carry the ark. And those poles remain in the rings forever, never take them out. Inside this box, you put the ark of the uh, testimony, which is a reference to the tablets, that I shall give you. Pretty dramatic vessel. So what are we we told here? We have a box, gold inside and out, got those rings on the side, and that's how you lift it and carry it. Those rings never leave. Those aren't temporary rings. You slide in and slide out. You keep them there all the time. And inside of it, you put the Ten Commandments in the Ark. 
Okay, let's pull out some lessons from this. Now, we could go on for a long time trying to understand the esoteric meanings behind everything. There's Literally, every part of this has been discussed in great detail. I want to try to pull out some of the core ideas, um, what these, what this represents. So we know that the, the, the one thing that's almost central to the building of the art is the fact that the tablets are going to be inside of it. This is interesting. This is not like an accessory to the art as you put stuff inside of it. Actually, in the description of the building of the ark is what goes inside of it, which means it's central to it. So what this means is that it's, it's, it has been compared, the ark, to the idea of Torah. Torah's God giving us what he wants, his knowledge, and that is captured in the ark. And more specifically, the vessel of the ark is what we ought to aspire to. If we want to be vessels for, the, for Torah, like the Ark is, we too have to model ourselves after the Ark. And once we have the Ark, we can put the Torah inside of it. Once we make ourselves, so to speak, into an Ark, we can have the Torah inside, inside of us. That's the general idea. So for example, the Talmud tells us, and this is brought down by the Sephorno, the Talmud tells us that a Torah scholar who internally is different than they are externally, is not a real Torah scholar. Says the Sephorn, that's represented over here. We're told that the Ark is made out of wood, but you wouldn't know it. Why? Because externally it's gold, and internally it's gold as well. So you can't actually see any of the wood. Now, we're going to read a little bit. There's a cover onto the box. So if there was no gold on the inside, no one would know. But the answer is if, it was, if there was no gold inside, it wouldn't be an ark. To be an ark has to be gold inside and out. To be a Torah scholar, you have to be gold externally, the way you interact with people, but also internally. If you're corrupt inside, you're not really an ark, i.e. you're not really a Torah scholar. It's just an incredible idea that, yes, we may be made out of wood, so to speak. We have our parts of us that are not as special. But it has to be that that wood is hidden. We have to find a way to take our innate, inborn character that's less than stellar and make it invisible. Internally, you're gold. Externally, you're gold. Then you're a proper venue for Torah to rest inside of you. Okay, so that's that, that's a nice idea to pull out of the uh, out of the ark. It's also interesting, we're told that there's two poles on either side of the ark that have rings, there's rings attached to the ark itself, and inside those rings you put the poles, and the poles never leave, and the poles are the ones that are going to carry it. You can't slide them out. So what's the lesson in that? I think there's a few lessons that we could take from this. First of all, these poles are designed to support the ark. So you would imagine that they're a separate entity. You have the ark itself, and you have the poles that go in it that help support it. Yet we're told that, the, that the, the poles are never allowed to be taken out. Which means is that they essentially become part of the ark. They're not limited to being merely supporters of the ark. They're actually become fused, so to speak, together. You're never allowed to take them out. And I think the lesson is, is that those who support Torah, even those that are not Torah itself, but this is what it means. It means that they become part of the grander, entity that is this ark, this Torah, and therefore you can't take them out. There's no way to separate the two. If someone supports Torah, they're becoming part of Torah on their own. 
That's one lesson. Another lesson is that this shows that the Torah is portable. That we can say that, oh, you know, we're in the diaspora, we're in Yemen, or we're in Babylon, or we're in Morocco, or in Spain, or in France, or, oh, now, now we're away from Torah. We're told is that the Torah's quality is that it's portable. Wherever we go, we take it with us. Now, there were a few miracles that were present in this ark. First of all, it was, um, like we said, it was two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half its height. It was placed inside the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was, was 10 amos wide. So if you were to place a two and a half cubit wide item in the middle of this room, you would have 3.75 amos on one side and 3.7 amos on the other side. Because it's 10, so you'd have 3.7, 2.5, and 3.7. Yet, remarkably, if you actually walked into the Holy of Holies and you would measure from the end of the ark until the wall, you get five cubits and five cubits on both sides. And that meant is that it doesn't take up any space. It was miraculous in the fact that it didn't take up any space. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't diminish from what the space was. Normally, you put something in, it takes away from the space. Here, you put it in, the space is not diminished, which is an interesting miracle. Miracle number two is that the Aron was no se es nosav. The Aron, the ark, it lifted those that lifted it. So people were tasked, the Kohanim were tasked in carrying it. But the truth is, they didn't carry it, it carried them. It lifted them. And they wouldn't need to walk, it's just as if the, the ark was carrying them. So it looks maybe like they're carrying it, but really it was carrying them. And I think that these two lessons are valuable for us to understand how we can become like an ark. We know Moshe, he is the paragon of someone who was a Torah scholar. He actually brought us the Torah. He's the greatest vessel of Torah there ever was. And the quality that he is most associated with is that of humility. Now, humility, apparently, is obviously the vessel. Someone wants to make themselves into a vessel that is capable of absorbing Torah they have to become humble. And we see the ark, you bring an ark into the room, it doesn't diminish from anything around it. The quality of someone that's humble is that when they come into a room, so to speak, others are not brought down. Someone who's haughty and arrogant, everyone else kind of has to be put in their place. Everyone else, everything else has to be limited. Whereas the ark, it goes into the room and nothing is diminished. Everything is the same as it was prior. Moreover, those that lift it, they think they're lifted, but really the ark lifts others. Again, that's the quality of someone who is worthy of, of absorbing Torah, is that he's able to, he or she is able to lift other people. The haughty one wants to put other people down. The humble person wants to lift them up to model ourselves after the ark, to make us ourselves humble, is, made, is to make ourselves more worthy of being a receptacle for Torah. Now the ark had a cover that was made entirely out of gold and was actually hammered out of gold, which means they had to take a single block of gold and hammer it out, which is an exceedingly difficult process. And out of this cover, there were two keruvim that came out of it on the either edge of the cover, one on the one side, one on the other side. And these kruvim, these cherubs, 
they had outstretched wings that were covering the cover. Inside the box, Moshe is told to put the tablets and then cover it with the kaporis, with the cover. And over there is where God would speak to them. Now, these two cherubs were also magical, miraculous cherubs, is that they they would face each other. You have these two cherubs, that's the only way to describe them. Uh, one of them was the face of a boy, and one was the face of a girl. And they would face each other. However, the Talmud tells us that the relationship that these two cherubs had with each other precisely mirrored the relationship the Jewish people had with God. So we're told there was a boy and a girl that there was like an intense love that's deeper, that's kind of like a an intimate love between the Jewish people and God. But when the Jewish people would turn away from God, God would turn away from them as well. They were mirrors of each other. So sometimes the Kohen, unfortunately, would walk into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and you see the cherubs not facing each other like in an embrace, even though they weren't touching, but at least in the pose of an embrace, they'd be facing away from each other, or at least to the side, or askew a little bit. I, I think that's a nice lesson for us, broadly speaking again, is that the Almighty will treat us exactly the way we treat Him. If we face God, God will face us. If we turn away from God, God will turn away from us. Turn away from us. It's always going to be exactly a mirror of each other. We say, Hashem Tzilcha, the Almighty is like our shadow. You determine what your shadow looks like. So if we want to embrace God, God will embrace us. If we want to come close to God, God will come close to us. If we want to abandon God, God will say, okay, you want to abandon me? I'll abandon you. You choose the relationship. We, and that's a tremendous power. We determine how God's going to treat us. What it means is, is that if God is distant from us, it's only because we became distant from Him. If He's not embracing us, it's, it's not that He didn't abandon us. He's just not embracing us. That's, that's not a way we want to live. That's the ark, and then we read about the table. So just quickly, the dimensions of the table. Again, it's made out of wood, and the wood is covered in gold, pure gold, another crown around it. And it has, again, it has rings on it, and the rings carry this table, and the table has these tiers in which bread is going to be put in it. So the end of the description says, on the table, you'll put this showbread, this bread, before God. So they would bake the bread on Friday, and then they would take the bread from the previous Friday and give it out to the Kohanes, to the Kohanim. What, uh, what's the meaning behind this table? So the Ramban tells us, first of all, the word shulchan, similar to the word sholeach, which means to send. God is going to use this, so to speak, as the way he sends prosperity to the world. And the Ramban here says that he brings us back to Genesis in an interesting way. He says that the world, the day one of creation, was ex nihilo, something out of nothing. All of the raw matter of the world, the energy of the world, all that was created on day one. Day uh, two through the rest of the days is crafting out of existing extant matter craft something out of it. And he says, our world only exists since then in the form of making something out of something else. You have something there, once something you have, you have to have a basic amount of matter and that can be used to make something out of it. Something out of nothing doesn't happen. So he says that this particular bread 
it was 12 loaves of bread. It wasn't a lot of bread, but it was something that you could take, God could take that and, and multiply that for the rest of the world. So what he says is, is that all the blessing of prosperity in the world would come through these showbreads and would be disseminated throughout the world. I think that, and the idea broadly is that we want to have God's blessing in our world, but it's not going to happen out of thin air. We have to have ground, so to speak, for it to apply itself upon. So, for example, there's a halacha that when someone someone has a bread meal, so they have like a Shabbos meal, they have challah, and they have other foods, and then they want to make a blessing, they want to say the berkat hamazon after the meal. Halacha is that the bread, whatever leftover bread at the table cannot be cleared off the table before the blessing is said. Why? For this reason. You want to have blessing, you have to have something that I can latch onto, so to speak. Something physical that I can latch onto. Because blessing out of nothing, ex nihilo blessing doesn't happen anymore. You want to say, okay, this blessing should, be, should at least find a place to grasp onto in the physical world. Expanding this idea, someone says, oh, I want to become rich. Great. I want a blessing from God. If there's nothing for it to apply itself on, if you, don't, you have no business, no commerce, you're just sitting on your couch, you're not going to become rich. Ex nihilo, the blessing doesn't happen. It has to find some place to latch onto. So therefore you say, okay, I'm doing this business venture. Now I want this business venture to bring me wealth. Okay, now at least there's something that I could hang the blessing onto. That's what this shulchan was, this table was. It was a place for God to sholech, to send his blessing to here, and from there it would spread out to the rest of the world. So Talmud tells us when the Kohen would eat from the showbread, he would take a little crumb, and you would eat the crumb, and you be full. Why? Well, God doesn't need to have a whole huge meal to fill you up. And if there's blessing available in the bread, so to speak, then all you need is a little crumb and you're full because God can give his blessing. If you eat nothing, you'll stay hungry. But if you eat a little bit, and there's blessing infused in that, then you have at least something where a miracle can take place. Next thing we have is the menorah. Uh, now the menorah is a very intricate description. Again, it's made out of pure gold. It's hammered out, shall the menorah be made. Its base, its shaft, its cups, its knobs, its blossoms should all be hammered out of it. So there's a lot of detail here. There's a, the, the menorah looks like a menorah that we have today. It's just that our menorah today has eight branches with one in the middle. This had six branches with one in the middle, a total of seven. And these six branches, the two, three on either side, would face towards the middle. And they have this uh, highly decorative branches with cups and knobs and almonds and all these interesting, intricate details in the menorah. If you actually go to the hotel, they have a, a replica of it. To the, to the, to Jerusalem, to Old City of Jerusalem. They have a replica of the, uh, of the menorah. They built it with all the details. Problem is they built it hollow. They went cheap. They said, well, technically it's okay if it's hollow, uh, i.e. we don't have like $100 million to pay for it. So there's an interesting Rashi here. Rashi tells us that if you actually look, you read the first verse, Moshe is told, make a menorah, hammer it out, and then it says, shall the menorah be made? It means it will be made, not you will make it. Moshe was told what to make it, but in the end it was made on its own. What Rashi says is that Moshe 
it was very hard to kind of visualize what it was like. So they might have made a picture of a menorah out of fire and said, this is what it's like and copy this. So Moshe started chipping and chipping away at it with his team of helpers. And it was still too hard to make. So the mice said, throw it into the fire. He threw it to the fire and that's what emerged. That's what uh, Rashi tells us, which does sound a lot very similar to the golden calf. And maybe we could say that this is kind of a rectification for the sin of the golden calf is going to be the menorah. Uh, also interesting here, just at how the menorah was built, the Maral says that when someone wants a miracle, how do miracles happen? Miracles don't happen in absence of human effort. Miracles don't happen with us not doing something, God will do it. Miracles are God's kind of just the coding on top of our effort where God, where God will place the miracle. So it was already known from the beginning that the menorah was going to be made by God. But that's a miracle. How does a miracle happen? First, you put in your effort, and then God will say, okay, you put in the best effort you can beyond you, now I'll do the miracle. It's almost as if if we had a race, a race to go up to a hundred, a hundred uh, floors to run up the stairs in uh, in an hour. Problem is, it takes you a minute to get up each floor. And they say, whoever gets, whoever reaches the top within an hour gets a huge prize. So there's a few guys that said, "Listen, I know the fastest you could ever go is one minute." per level, per floor. You have a hundred minutes minimum to get there. You only have an hour. So those people stayed at the bottom, said, oh, we'll never do it. We'll never be able to conquer this mountain, this, this, uh, whatever the conquer this feat, let's not even try. Another guy dropped out after 20, he's like 20 minutes, it's been 20, it's been 20, uh, floors, there's no way I could possibly reach the top, and they drop out. Well, who gets to the top? The guy who gets to the 59th level, and then he finds the elevator. That's, that's what a miracle is. A miracle is you'll put in all your effort and you'll go to the max. And if God wants you to do something that's beyond your capacity, but you gave 110% of your effort, then you'll have the miracle. You'll have the elevator takes you all the way to the top and you'll get there. And that I think is a good lesson for us. Like we think of some tasks that are beyond. We can't see how we can get from here to the end. There's no way. So we say only a miracle could get to us. Okay. Let's sit on our hammock. And wait for the miracle to show up. No, that's not how a miracle happens. A miracle is you do everything that you could possibly muster towards the goal, and then let God do the miracle on top of that. Moshe says, this is going to be built on a miracle. God says, you shall make the menorah. Hammer it out. It shall be made. Eventually, it's going to be made by me, okay? But doesn't mean that the miracle happens in a vacuum. We know with the uh, splitting of the sea. So the sea split, right? Well, how did the sea actually split? So... Everyone jumped into the water, and they went until it was up to their nostrils, and then it split. Again, the same thing. Yeah, it was a miracle, but how do miracles happen? You have to give some sort of baseline of effort to reach the elevator. You don't do effort. You wait in the beach for the sea to split. You'll be overrun by Pharaoh and his people. Nice, uh, a nice lesson here. Okay, let's 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 go to the end of it here. The, the rest of the ten curtains. So this had a hard time to understand what this even looked like. There's actually a few books written. Uh, illustrations, but that has detailed pictures of what we imagine these themes to look like. Now, this is just remarkable what's being described here. Ten curtains made out of fabric. 
a woven design of cherubs in them. And we're told, Rashi tells us, that these were designed, embroidered in a way that there was different pictures on either side. How they did that is a great mystery. But there's uh, ten curtains that are, each one of them is four by 28 cubits, and then they're they're woven together. Uh, they're attached by the edges. There's loops that are hooked with uh, with uh, with hooks together. Couldn't quite visualize how this actually looks, but it's a very ornate and elongated um, curtains. It's that are uh, five and five uh, that are mixed uh, that are uh, woven together, and they're used to cover this tabernacle. And it's interesting, we're talking about covering the tabernacle, we haven't described what the tabernacle itself is built out of. And then we're told that the, the, the actual walls of the tabernacle, again, made out of wood, standing straight. Each one of them is 10 cubits tall, so they're about 20 feet tall, very, very big, very tall. Each one's a cubit and a half wide. On the bottom, there's these two, they call them tenons, but two hands sticking out, and then we place a silver base, and the, the, those two would click in. And then, there were, and then on top, each plank was standing next to the other bl- plank, and there were, on the bottom, it was solidified by a silver base, and on top, it was hooked to its neighbor by another ring, a square ring. Okay, interesting note here. When we build, we build horizontally. Here, they're being built vertically, which is, which is interesting. And I saw that the Archaim writes that this is representative of what the Mishkan is all about. It's about a vertical connection between our world and God. And that's uh, captured in the way they built the the walls of the Ark. There's various partitions. There's a partition between the Holy of Holies and the Holy, which is the sections of the tabernacle. There's also partitions that are going to separate the Chatzar, which is the expanded part of the Mishkan, from the rest of, of the camp, we are commanded to build the altar, altar on which the sacrifices are going to be built. More about the sacrifices when we get to it. The altar is made, again, out of wood. This one, it's covered with copper. And that was uh, the place where they would do the sacrifices. And lastly, we're told about the courtyard in which this is placed. Uh, we read this parasha, and it's kind of hard for It's a lot of details, a lot of numbers a lot of architectural descriptions, but I think it's important for us to take the core lesson to heart, and that is this is an attempt, or at least it's, it's God extending the idea that he is, he is willing and eager, provided we follow these instructions, to dwell amongst us in this particular way. It's hard for us to find meaning in all the exact descriptions and all the measurements and all that, but we can rely on God to say that he has his calculations and He's the expert, and we, if we do this, we'll ha- we'll merit. Next week's parasha, we're going to learn more about the various vessels that needed to be created for this mishkan. Uh, specifically, we're going to learn about ve- the vestments, the clothing of the kohanes. There's very intricate clothings of the kohanes, and lastly, we're going to read about the inauguration. What's going to happen when everything's ready, and it's going to be built, and what happens then? And I look forward to doing that with y'all next week.